Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're going to bring you the story of Steven Steiner. He was a kidnapping victim, and Trish is going to let us know more about this case in just a bit. But first, we're going to kick you off to our bartending lesson of the day. Welcome back to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today I am going to help you make one of my favorite college shots. When I was in college, I lived across the street from like the most popular bar in town. Um, I say town. I went to Mississippi State University, (laughs) so Starkville, Mississippi. It's kind of, it's blooming, so it's definitely becoming more of a town slash city, but a lot of people would consider Starkville, Mississippi the bumfuck country. So, um, however you view it, whenever I was in college, I lived across the street from Cowbells, if you know what that is. It was the only bar that was open past midnight, so it was very popular, and, like, they did penny pitchers. It was a whole thing. But I was not a fan of beer. I've never been a fan of beer. I still do not like beer. You probably know that if you've listened to this podcast for a little bit. So I was always on the hunt for like shots that I could order from the bar that would get me fucked up for as little money as possible (laughs) that tasted good without tasting like pure alcohol. And my favorite two shots was the kamikaze and the blue kamikaze. And they're very similar and a lot of different people have different recipes for this. The easiest recipe to make this would be equal parts of all of the ingredients. So your kamikaze is just vodka, triple sec, and lime juice. So like a half ounce of each, that's going to be your easiest recipe. If you want it to be a little bit more of a uh, burning sensation on the way down, do one and a quarter to one and a half ounces of vodka with a half ounce of triple sec and lime juice to preference. Y'all know we love our shit sour, so I'm going to say half an ounce of lime juice, but you do you, boo. The blue kamikaze is very much the same thing. Some people replace the triple sec with the blue carousel, and some people just add the blue carousel to the vodka triple sec and lime juice. Once again, it just depends on your size of shot glass. (laughs) And also a preference thing. Uh, Blue Carousel and Triple Sec are both essentially simple syrups. And so if you want it more sweet, use them both. If you want it a little less sweet, just use the Blue Carousel. But once again, that's just the vodka, your choice of the sweetener or sweeteners, and some lime juice. So you're going to shake that, strain it into your shot glass. You could also sip this as a cocktail, and it is a very simple drink slash shot to order from any bar. If you are at like any dive bar or, you know, like a drinking bar, your bartender should know what a kamikaze is. If you're at a corporate restaurant bar, (laughs) they probably don't. They probably don't. Um, We've both worked for corporate restaurants as bartenders. And like, I have a vast knowledge of bartending from this show. And just like, I took it on as a hobby in in high school. I mean, not in high school, in college. (laughs) I've started pouring beers in high school, oh, but yeah, yeah. not bartending. Um, 
but I have a very vast knowledge but like right now I'm training a lot of baby bartenders and they don't and we've had quite a few rude customers come in lately and they're just like you're not a real bartender if you don't know what x y and z drink is but if you're in a corporate restaurant your bartenders are trained to make the corporate menu and that's about it yep that's literally all they expect us to teach them so if you are at an average bar that is strictly alcohol they should know what a kamikaze is if your bartender doesn't know what a kamikaze is, now you can explain it. Very simple. Just tell them equal parts, vodka, triple sec, lime juice. All right. So that's it for today for the bartending lesson. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you try this shot or drink, let us know what you think and we'll kick you off to the case. So as we said, today's case is going to be about Steven Steiner. And first I want to start off if we sound a little more echoey or whatnot we're in a different location because we do have a friend that's going to be coming to record with us and so we need to test out um our first guest she's been highly requested from our co-workers <laughs> but we needed to test out a different location that was big enough for three people to be in and from what we're hearing on our end, it sounds a little bit different, but not much. So if y'all have any feedback for us, if this is absolutely horrible and we never need to do this again, let us know. <laughs> if but. it's not that bad, feel free to also let us know. But if it's horrible, please, please, please let us know. Right. So. Just from our end, what we can tell, it still sounds kind of the same. Yeah. So... Just wanted to put that out there if you're like, it, it's a little different this week. It, we're in a different location. <laughs> but getting to our case. So Steven Steiner was the third of five children. Still not as big as my family. Then again, most people aren't like my family. <laughs> I would not. His parents, Delbert and Kay Steiner, lived in Merced, California. He had three sisters and an older brother, Carrie, which we'll get to Carrie at the end of this episode. He, he becomes a little bit of a interesting side story. All right. Looking forward to it. So on December 4th, 1972... Steven Steiner, age seven, was on his way home from school when a man named Irvin Edward Murphy, like, approached him. Irvin had become acquainted with convicted child rapist Kenneth Parnell, where they both worked at a resort in Yosemite National Park. Irvin was described by those that knew him as naive, trusting, and simple-minded. So, not always the uh, greatest little combo there. Parnell had passed himself off as an, an aspiring minister and had enlisted Irvin into helping to abduct a young boy so Parnell could raise him in a religious type of, like, situation. Sounds like a great situation. <laughs> right? Forcing religion is always the best answer. No, oh, yeah. So, acting on instructions, Irvin was passing out gospel tracts to boys walking home from school that day. And after he spotted Stephen, he claimed to be a church representative seeking donations. 
Stephen claimed that Irvin had asked if his mother would be willing to donate items to the church, to which he said she would. So Irvin asked him where he lived and if he would mind taking him to his home. This is the 70s. We didn't know stranger danger, apparently. So Stephen agreed, and then a white Buick driven by Parnell came and picked up him and Irvin. Stephen said they passed the road he lived on, and they would, and that Parnell said they would call his parents to see if he could stay the night. He didn't want to stay the night, though. <laughs> right? He wanted to go home. So Parnell then drove him to his cabin in Kathy's Valley. Stephen was unaware that his maternal grandmother's house was only several hundred feet away. That first night in the cabin, Parnell molested Stephen, and 13 days later, on December 7, 1972, Parnell, Parnell began raping Stephen. I'm sure he asked for his parents' permission. To... <laughs> it's like this poor child. This poor child. <sighs> so Stephen told Parnell he would... He wanted to go home, but he was told that he had been, that Parnell had been granted legal custody of Stephen because his parents couldn't afford all the children and didn't want him anymore. Oh, poor kid. Right? I'm like, now remember, he's a seven-year-old. Yes. So he's probably devastated by this. And gullible. Right? You're you're literally told that you're not not that he's gullible is the wrong word. Let me take that back. I think you're naive, vulnerable. Yeah, you're naive and vulnerable. Yes, but like, could you imagine being seven, being told, "Oh, your parents don't want you anymore." Um, I have no memories. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, but I do know that my parents separated slash divorced around that age. So, like, not to sound woe is me or anything, but I could absolutely see myself falling for that as a kid because I was also in a very vulnerable position because you're you're just vulnerable at that age regardless. But, yes, I could absolutely. It's just, I like, when I, when I saw that, like, pop up, I went, this poor kid, you've already been raped and molested. Yes. And, and now you're mean, told your parents don't want you anymore and the guy that has assaulted you is now your legal guardian. So after this, Kenneth Parnell started calling Stephen Dennis Gregory Parnell. He kept his real middle name and birth date so that when he was enrolled in schools over the next couple years, it'd be a little easier. Oh, okay. He also told... Steven slash Dennis to call him dad so that he could easily pass himself off as like father and son. No, thank you. But um, you gotta remember, Steven's been told. He thinks his parents don't want him. So he's not gonna really fight him on this. So, like I said, Parnell passed himself off as father, and they moved around California to areas such as Santa Rosa and Capache, I think is how it's said. Capache? I don't remember. 
So, and even at one point, he was in school a mere five hours away from his hometown. And he thought his parents didn't want him anymore, so it's just like, whatever. But yet, his parents made sure that his story stayed in the news in hopes that he was still out there and maybe someone would spot him. I mean, at that point, that's kind of all you really can do. Yeah. Stephen was allowed to drink at a young age and basically come and go as he pleased. I'm guessing it was kind of like a Stockholm Syndrome type thing where he just, one, he thought his parents didn't want him anymore. He figured he's probably stuck in this situation. And Parnell had, like, done enough damage that he didn't really fear that Stephen would try to leave. Uh, Stephen did say he always had a fear of Parnell, which is why he never told anyone about the rape or molestation. And Parnell had many jobs over the years. Um, some even required him to leave Stephen alone and unguarded, which again, I don't think he ever feared that he would leave. Right. I mean, he's very brainwashed, I'm sure. Yeah. The one positive thing about the whole kidnapping and rape situation is that Stephen received a dog as a gift. And that was kind of like his one true like solace in all this. Mm -hmm. It was a Manchester Terrier named Queenie. And the dog was given to Parnell by his mother who knew nothing about Stephen. There was someone in Parnell's life for, like, a little while that knew about Stephen. And for a period of 18 months, a woman named Barbara Matthews lived with them. And according to Stephen, Barbara and Parnell raped him on nine separate occasions at the age of nine. How? 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 As a woman... How do you help facilitate that situation? Yep. I I just... I mean, how is a human being, one... Yeah, and then, like... That you don't have a huge maternal... Yeah. <laughs> like, but, like, even you're, even like... Me, I'm like, whoa. Uh, you yeah. saved the baby. Yeah, it... It's just, it's ridiculous. Like, I was literally like, oh. So remember this. Remember Barbara. Okay. Barbara. <laughs> In 1975, Parnell instructed Barbara to abduct a boy who was in the Santa Rosa's boys club with Stephen. But luckily the attempt failed. Barbara would later claim she didn't know Dennis had been kidnapped. As Stephen got older and entered puberty, Parnell began looking for a younger boy to kidnap. He had tried to use Stephen to attempt to kidnap young children before, but they never were successful. Parnell just believed Stephen lacked the skills to be an accomplice, but Stephen later said he he sabotaged all the attempts. So, 
yes, he's brainwashed into not leaving, but also he's like, no, I'm not going to let anybody be subjected to this. February 14th, 1980, Parnell and one of Steven's teenage friends, Randall Sean Poorman, kidnapped five-year-old Timmy White in... I literally <laughs> looked up how to pronounce this, and I still don't think I'm going to pronounce this right. <laughs> but it looks like Yukata, but I think it's pronounced Tukata or something like that. I don't know. That's another place in California. Okay. So, Stephen said the boy's distress became motivation for him wanting to return him to his parents and also like him finally want to escape. Right. On March 1st, 1980, while Parnell was away at a night security job, Stephen ran away with Timmy and hitchhiked some 50 miles to Yucata, Timmy's Lake hometown. Mm-hmm. Unable to locate Timmy's home, they went to the police station. And obviously, Timmy's been very recently abducted, so like he was well known. It didn't take long for him to be reunited in that. And police were like, All right, got that. Who are you? And that. And then the most heartbreaking thing I think I read during this whole thing was. When they asked, you know, Stephen who he was, or like what his name was in that, he responded with, I know my first name is Stephen. He didn't remember his last name. Oh, man. Mm hmm. He was seven. Yep. He had been called Dennis Parnell for so long that he forgot his actual name. Besides knowing that it was Steven. By daybreak the next day, Kenneth Parnell was arrested on suspicion of kidnapping both boys. And when police looked into Parnell's background, they found a previous sodomy conviction from 1951. Hmm. Glad to know things haven't changed. There's a pattern, you say? <laughs> So, they had asked Stephen if there was any abuse, but he denied it because he was kind of, like, afraid and he didn't want, like, that really associated with him. But police found photos of Stephen that basically stated otherwise, which is a whole new level of, like, sick March 2nd, 1980, both boys were reunited with their families, so they were able to figure out who Stephen was. Yeah. In 1981, Parnell was tried and convicted of kidnapping Stephen and Timmy in two separate trials. He was sentenced to seven years, but was paroled after serving five. Parnell wasn't charged on any of the the sexual assaults because most happened outside the jurisdiction or by the time they were like brought up it was outside the statute of limitations mm -hmm. 
Both Irvin and Randall were convicted of lesser charges for helping Parnell. They claimed they knew nothing of the sexual assault of Stephen. And remember good old Barbara? What happened oh, to she's, me? she's innocent, right? What happened to Barbara, you might ask? Well, nothing. She was never arrested. Nothing ever came about it. She claimed she did nothing. She claimed she knew nothing about him being kidnapped. Nothing. No, you just lived there for a year and a half and kept your mouth shut. Well, you did more than that. But. Yeah. Now, Stephen does recall the kindness of Uncle Murphy, as mm -hmm. he called him. He said that he showed him in the first week of him being, like, he showed him, like, kindness in the first week of him being kidnapped. And he believes under Parnell's manipulation and influence, Irvin was as much a victim as him and Timmy were. The kidnapping of Stephen and Timmy prompted California lawmakers to change law so it would allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases, which is why the, like, sentencing was so short, because they didn't have stuff like that. After returning home, Stephen struggled with living in such a structured household. He had been able to drink, smoke, and do as he pleased with Parnell. Right. So, like, adjusting to rules and that was hard for him. Sure. He said, in an interview, I returned home almost a grown man, but my parents saw me as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. Yeah, he asked why his dad didn't hug him anymore, and he blamed himself and wondered if he should have, if he should have even come home. He wondered if he would be better off if he hadn't come home, which I think is heartbreaking because... I feel like... They kept looking for him for so long. They obviously wanted him home. They just didn't know how to make him... Also, as a dad, you're thinking, somebody like me basically kidnapped my son and did right. stuff to him. Yeah. And you don't know how your son's going to react to you. So would it be even more heartbreaking if, like, you went in for a hug and he flinched away from you? Because I'm sure you already feel like you failed him as a dad. dad. Yeah. True. The flip side of the coin. But also, like, you're making your son feel unwanted. He did un go, like, to counseling for a brief time but didn't continue additional treatment. He also refused to tell all the details of the sexual assault he endured. His sister, in an interview in 2007, said Stephen didn't receive the counseling because his father said he didn't need it. She also said kids at school bullied Stephen for being assaulted and he dropped out. She said Stephen got in, got on with his life, but he was still pretty messed up, which, I mean... Understandably. Yeah. How do you come back from that, especially if, like, counseling isn't working? Um, so, Stephen began to drink pretty regularly and was kicked out of the family house, and his relationship with his father remained strained. Again, I'm sure there's so many factors into that. And old wounds just keep probably getting brought up. Yeah. 
1985, Stephen married 17-year-old Jody Edmondson. He was working in a butcher shop when they met, and Jody said he was more grounded than other kids and was calm. Which, yeah, I figure he probably had to grow up pretty fast. He went on to have two children, a daughter, Ashley, and a son, Stephen Jr. He was a good dad and family man, and Jody said it came to him naturally. He worked with children abduction groups, spoke to children about personal safety, and gave interviews about his kidnapping. He joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I feel like is... An odd way to go, I guess, but whatever. On September 16th, 1989, while living in Merced, Stephen was involved in a fatal hit-and-run car crash. His motorcycle collided with a car, giving him a fatal head injury. The alleged driver was later identified by a witness. 500 people attended his funeral, and 14-year-old Timmy White was a pallbearer. Right? This story, as I got into it, I was like, this is so heartbreaking. I was like, oh. There are very few rays of sunshine right now. Right? Um, Starting in 1989, many TV and movie adaptations were made about Steven Steiner. And one called, I know my first name is Steven, is probably the most well-known. In April of 2022, Hulu did release a docuseries called Captive Audience, A Real American Horror Story, which I have not watched, but I'll probably look into it. It'll be on the list. Right. In 2004, Parnell, now 72, was convicted of trying to pr- trying the previous year to convince his caretaker's sister to kidnap a five-year-old boy for $500. Oh. Leopard never changes their spots. So being aware of his past, it was reported to the police. Timmy, now a grown man, was subpoenaed to testify at the trial. And they used Stephen's earlier testimony from the previous trial as like a testimony also. Parnell died of natural causes on January 21st, 2008 at the California Medical Facility in the Cayville, California. Uh, he was serving a sentence of 25 years to life. Timmy White later became a deputy at the Los Angeles County Sheriff Department. He died April 1st, 2010 at the age of 35 from a pulmonary embolism. Oh. Right? On August 2nd, 2010, a statue of Stephen and Timmy was dedicated in Applegate Park in Merced. Residents of Yucata carved the statue of a young Stephen with Timmy in hand fleeing captivity. The statue is supposed to be a tribute to Stephen, but it's also used to give hope to families of missing children. Now... (laughs) I just find that, like, really odd. Like, the, it would have been better to have spent the money. They tried to make a, um, like, parks for him. 
and that, and they were going to have, like, a Steiner Park, but I'm going to get to okay. why they they didn't do that route okay. <laughs> here. So, yeah, they had, like, other forms of, like, dedication, and there is a park or two, I think, dedicated to, like, the boys, but, like, the statue was something that was thought up of as, like, a way to make it that was just about, like, Stephen and Timmy. Because, <sighs> sadly, the Steiner family <laughs> didn't suffer just the tragedy of Stephen's kidnapping and then his untimely death. They also had to deal with, with their other brother, Carrie. Oh, right. I forgot we had a twist in this story. Oh, yes. So, in 1999... The older brother, Carrie Steiner, killed four women near and in Yosemite National Park. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Sharp left turn. Right? So you have a family that, for how much of their lives, dealt with one of their own being kidnapped and all this terrible stuff. He he did come home, and you're able to experience at least some of his life. But then, a few years later, you have basically a murder pop up. So, in 2002, he was sentenced to the death penalty. And at the time of the article I found, and I think I did find something that was more like recently too, he's currently sitting on death row at San Quentin. Carrie was unwell since he was a toddler, according to his sister. And I saw somewhere that Carrie basically did it because he felt neglected his entire I, life. That's what I was going to bring up is, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it was just as traumatic on the other kids growing up in that household. You know, always living in the, like limelight to the brother that's missing his parents are always looking for him and i get that but that doesn't mean you have to go out and kill people so like carrie's story is a whole nother case that i could really research and like bring in if if we're interested which i'm kind of interested <laughs> but say, maybe that could be a patreon case right or something. but i will say there's something it was in one of the articles or like one of the shows I watched for this. And it was a, basically someone saying that Carrie did this. And when he was finally like questioned by police and was about to admit to it, he requested that they contact a Hollywood producer so oh. that he could get a show or a movie. Oh, okay. Just no, like sir. his brother. No, sir. <laughs> no sir you were like, not worthy I was like <sighs> there's ways to go about you know not basically being in your siblings shadow that's not one but that, that you don't go about by killing four women <laughs> but that that's the story of Steven Steiner and like I said it, it takes a very odd twist at the end. Like, I literally was reading it, and I was like, this sounds like a good one. And I, when I got to the end, I went, 
Whoa. Whoa. Sharp left turn. <laughs> oh, what? This family went from, I've lost my child to, oh my gosh, we got him back. To, oh, my other child has now killed people. <laughs> and the other child passed away somewhere in there. Right. <laughs> Just like. The poor family. Poor Steven. Poor all of them. Right. I was just like, fuck. <laughs> fuck the one dude. What's his name? Damn. Uh, Parnell? Or... Yes, Parnell. Fuck and him. Barbara. And Carrie. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> I understand you, but also still. You didn't have to take out women like that. That's right. so disrespectful. But yeah, like I said, this story, like, it's it's got somewhat of a happy ending because, like, you know, as far as, like, Stephen and Timmy. Well, no, but as far as Stephen and Timmy went, they survived and they were able to get reunited with their families yeah. and that and live somewhat of a normal life. They both had tragic, like, endings not related to the kidnapping. Yeah. But, like, was that there's, like, there's just so much that I'm like, this is, this was just, like, it felt like one of those, like, Made for TV dramas. It was like, all right, happy ending and side story. <laughs> I'm sure Lifetime does have a movie about this. I'm sure. I was like, oh, jeez. But if they don't, Lifetime, contact us. <laughs> we will help write it for a fee. But that that's my story. Like I said, it was an interesting one. And I will definitely look into Carrie's and we'll either cover it on here or let you know when it's up on Patreon. But I guess with that being said, um, we'll digest this a little bit, but we'll also kick you off to the last call that's hopefully a little more uplifting. I have a nice, uplifting, <laughs> lighthearted. We're going to talk about cryptids, so get ready. <laughs> okay. So get ready. All right, it's another last call with your bartender, Sloan. And today I wanted to talk about the cryptids of Alabama. And also this kind of leads into like, I could do like all 50 states, like cryptids of all 50 states. So if that's something that y'all are interested in, let me know. Cause it's definitely something that I'm interested in. <laughs> but since we live in Alabama, it's the first state in the alphabet as well. It works out this way. So the first one is the Wolf Woman of Mobile. And I have lived here for five years and I have never heard of a Wolf Woman of Mobile. So this is going to be interesting for all of us. The half-wolf, half-woman creature so frightened the citizenry of Mobile that people began calling the press register to report the sightings. On April 8th, 1971, the newspaper reported the phenomenon, complete with a drawing of the creature conceived by a newspaper illustrator. Listening to as many as 50 phone calls the press register has received day and night in approximately a week, you wonder if perhaps there isn't something out there. Witnesses describe the creature as pretty and hairy, and the top half was a woman, and the bottom half was a wolf. So to me, I'm envisioning, like, uh, the Harry Potter, <laughs> uh, what's, he, what's he called? Cenotaur. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yes, the centaur. That's what it is. The centaur. So that's what I'm envisioning, but it's like a I'm thinking, wolf. I'm thinking Phil from uh, Hercules. <laughs> that's another good one. Yes, yes. 
but top half woman, bottom half wolf. An unnamed teenager is quoted as saying, my daddy saw it down in a marsh and it chased him home. Now my mommy keeps all the doors and windows locked. One witness had heard the creature escape from a circus sideshow. That's an interesting theory. The reporter said the fear of witnesses seemed real, although the initial reports would have begun on April Fool's Day. The police were getting calls, too, and although officers would not make an official comment, they did investigate to determine what exactly Mobile's citizens were seeing. Sightings of half-wolf, half-human creatures have been reported throughout history, with the werewolf being the most common incarnation. The legends of anthropomorphic creatures stem from American Indian folklore and capture the imagination. Within days, sightings of the wolf woman of Mobile stopped and have not been reported since. So to me, that definitely sounds like an April Fool's joke. Like a few people were like, hey, let's say we saw this thing. And then people were like, oh, yeah, that sounds scary. (laughs) I think I saw it, too. I mean, this is Alabama, you know, where here in Mobile we had the leprechaun. Yes. Yes, we talked about that on our St. Patrick's Day episode, or we posted it on our Instagram. So, Uh, if you don't know where we're talking about, you can find it on our Instagram, but, like, the quickest way to find it is Googling Mobile Leprechaun. Surprisingly, he did not make this list. (laughs) Surprisingly. Right? So, the next one on the list is Bigfoot. Did you know that reportings of reports of sightings of Bigfoot in Alabama are very common? There was one over in uh, Sims recently. Yeah, it's in the past like year. I want to say it was last summer. It was literally no, it was literally this year. It was this summer. Yeah, this spring or whatever. Yes. So I I didn't realize until that happened, but once I looked into that, I realized that a lot of people do think they see Bigfoot here. So interesting. Do you think Bigfoot exists? I would love to hear your commentary on our socials. Email us. I, in the past few years, am starting to believe that Bigfoot exists. I saw a TikTok, and y'all know, like, conspiracy theory, me, tinfoil hat, whole shebang. But I saw a TikTok that was talking about how, like, Bigfoot could be a type of, uh like type of creature that's living and they're primarily living in the cave systems underneath America and they go through the mountains and all of that. And I'm just saying that you usually see Bigfoot sightings around mountains and caves. So it's possible. It's possible. And you can't tell me that it's not possible because the government kept telling us that aliens did not exist. And now all of a sudden they want to distract us from other things and they want to tell us that aliens exist. No fucking duh. You have to be really small-minded to think that we live in this ginormous galaxy and we are the only living creatures in it. I saw a TikTok the other day and it was like someone had posted a thing saying like they think there's at least five different like alien races in our like galaxy. And someone goes, you're telling me that there are five alien races that could have abducted, abducted my ass today. Nobody want me. I just want to know where the sign-up sheet is. <laughs> there is a 
fairly popular abduction that happened fairly close to us. I mean, it was many decades ago. But if you look it up, the Pascagoula abduction. Yeah. Pascagoula, Mississippi is very close to us. So I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there in the universe. Aliens, where's the sign-up sheet? Right. <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. My husband wants to go to space too, so I'll, I'll take him with us. And can we also take our dogs, please? But that's that's the sign-up sheet for this household. Right. Four beings. Four. Anyways, back to Bigfoot. <laughs> back to Bigfoot. Uh, sightings are plentiful enough for Jim Smith to start the Alabama Bigfoot Society. Smith reports sightings on the group's website, including the latest one in Daviston in September. He also describes ways people can tell a Sasquatch has been in the area. There are bent or snapped trees. Trees are arranged in a teepee sort of shape. That sort of thing. Smith writes, I became interested in this elusive creature in 1971 while in high school in East Central Alabama. I was 15 at the time. It seems that year we people in this area had one or more of those creatures roaming the woods in a fairly large area. There were multiple sightings over several months, and I saw this giant, hairy, quote, non-existent, end quote, creature for myself more than once. Smith says that currently at the age of 56, he remains as interested in Sasquatch as he was at 15. And another quote from him is, since my first sighting, I have spent numerous hours in the field investigating sighting reports. I have listened to countless witnesses relive, relive their own encounter -er or encounters. So... Bigfoot, I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely possible. The next one on the list is the Alabama, quote, white thing, end quote. The legend of the Alabama white thing has been prevalent since the 1940s in a triangle between Morgan, Etowah, and Jefferson counties, where people reported seeing a creature more than seven feet tall and covered in white hair. That sounds like a Yeti to me. A distant cousin from the Sasquatch, if you will. <laughs> uh, it has been sighted in Happy Hollow, Walnut Grove, Moody's Chapel, and Wheelchair Wildlife Refuge. The creature is known for its ability to move extremely quickly despite its size and for its eerie screech that sounds like a woman's scream. Some have described the scream as sounding like that of a panther. I have never seen a seven-foot panther, I don't think. Maybe, uh, no, I don't think so. That sounds terrifying. Right. Many have speculated that the white thing is an albino Bigfoot or a Yeti, like I said. Thank you for my tinfoil hat knowledge. Perhaps a large or perhaps a large albino bear. Peter J. Gossett writes on his website of Winston County History that his aunt, Benita Martin Smith, knew people who reported the white thing. Smith told Gossett, Old man George Norris seen it over there in Enon Graveyard, and he said it looked like a lion. You know, bushy, betwixt, a dog and a lion. It was white and slick with long hair. It had a slick tail down to the end of the tail of a big old bush of hair. He leant up against the tree and fell asleep. When he woke up, the sun was just rising, and the white thing was laying right beside him, and it was looking at him. He said it didn't offer or hurt him or nothing. I feel like if you didn't grow up in the South, you would have had a much harder time reading that statement. <laughs> <laughs> and while I stumbled my way through, I've, I'm also a few margaritas in. So, In Huntsville, the phrase Alabama white thing is used to describe a humanoid, possibly alien figure spotted in caves or drainage ditches in Jones Valley. 
along Governor's Drive and on Montesano Mountain. Montesano? Montesano. The creature is described as having no eyes or ears and being completely white. A team of researchers of the white thing started a Facebook page called Alabama White Thing. So if you're more interested in that creature, look up that Facebook page. <laughs> the next cryptoid for Alabama is Huggin' Molly. Sounds terrifying, huh? For mothers wanting their children to hurry home at dark, the legend of the witch-like Huggin' Molly was a helper. For children, she was downright frightening. The Abbeville legend of Huggin' Molly began decades ago. Legend claimed a phantom woman would appear to children, but only at night. She would squeeze them tightly, then scream in their ears. She never harmed them, other than perhaps causing some ringing in their ears. But the figure was as much as seven feet tall, wearing dark clothing and a wide-brimmed hat. One version of the story claims Molly was the ghost of a woman who had lost an infant who dealt with the tragedy by, by hugging local children. Another states that Molly was a professor at the former Southeast Alabama, uh, Southeast Alabama Agriculture School who was trying to keep students safe by keeping them off the streets at night. Today, Abbeville remembers Hugging Molly by venturing downtown and stopping in a cafe named for the Phantom. Huggin' Molly's is set in an old pharmacy, complete with a soda fountain, and offers such trees, treats as sandwiches, W-I-T-C-H-A, yeah, and Molly Fingers. Huggin' Molly's is located at 129 Kirkland Street in Abbeville, if you want to visit. The last crypto cryptid of Alabama for today is the Downy Booger. A series of sightings of Downy Booger, a half-human, half-animal, were reported in the late 1800s. According to Joyce Ferris, whose husband is a descendant of the Downies of Winston County, the tale is part of family lore. Another descendant, Vera Whitehead, recorded the history, which Ferris published on a website of Winston County History. Whitehead wrote, In the later part of the 1800s, Winston County, Alabama, was known for the Downy Booger. Cousins John and Joe Downey were returning home from a community dance one night when they saw the creature. John and Joe were jostling along in their thoroughbreds, gaily, gaily recounting the events of the evening, when suddenly a strange-looking creature, bearing both the resemblance of a human and an animal, leaped out in front of them. They turned around and again started toward home. As they approached the sandbed where this weird creature had appeared, the horses came to an abrupt stop. They gouged them in the side, beat them with the brittles, but they could not budge an inch. Finally, they turned around and rode back to the Tittle House, remembering a longer route they could take. Others also saw the creature nicknamed the Downy Booger, and one sighting would lead to its demise, according to Whitehead. On a moonlit night in early fall, Jim Jackson loaded his two-horse wagon with his barrels of homemade moonshine and headed for a commissary in Galloway, a mining town a few miles from his home. Glancing over his right shoulder, his eyes fell upon a peculiar-looking creature waltzing on two feet behind his wagon. He froze. His first impulse was to try to outrun it. He remembered his gun on the wagon seat beside him. He took the revolver, aimed, and fired twice. It screamed like a woman in distress and went limping away on three feet. The news spread quickly. Jim Jackson had shot the downy booger. A posse was formed. They combed the forest, only finding traces of blood leading from the sand bed to a distant cliff. Until this day, this incident is repeated among the residents of Winston County. What the Downy Booger was will forever be a mystery. So, those are supposedly the top five cryptids of Alabama, but like we mentioned, we didn't even touch on the Mobile Leprechaun, and that is the best story ever. <laughs>
ever. Oh. But if you're interested in hearing about more cryptids, let me know. This is definitely something that I'm interested in. That would be a cool, like, last call series to start up. If you have any cryptids you would specifically like to hear about, let me know at tequilasherote at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on our socials. They We have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. They're all Tequila She Wrote across the board. We also have our Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You'll get ad-free episodes. You also get a bonus episode. And then if you join some of the other tiers we have, you get even more content. There's also some merch and easiest way to find that is either by going to our socials and finding our link tree and then we'll have a direct link to it or you need to go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote and it should bring you right there unfortunately we're not popular enough to uh, just be searched yet but we'll get there one day <laughs> until then just search for us or check our socials there's a link there i believe but we hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for riding on the hot mess express toot toot beep beep <laughs>